Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about The Matrix Resurrections. Yes. The new Matrix. We've seen it on opening night, I believe, opening day. Yes, it was exciting. And no one's been more excited to see it than Mike. I've been very excited, Uh you know. The Matrix is an important film series to me. We did the original Matrix on the podcast when it was reissued um, two years ago, I think. Oh, I haven't listened to that. I should (laughs) re-listen. And... um, we had various takes on it. Actually, one thing that we didn't talk about, but has come into kind of sharp relief, I suppose, in recent years, is the trans um, reading of The Matrix. Well, uh, I can't say about the previous trilogy because, you know, I don't remember the two last films very well, but this film definitely has, um, well, a whole series of things, actually, I think, that make it great. I think it's a really a feminist film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is a trans film. It's a very queer film uh, in many ways. Uh, And it's also an enormous pleasure to see two clearly middle-aged people be the center of a love story. Mm -hmm. And two middle-aged people who, to my eye at least, don't seem to have had work done. Yeah, you see all their little wrinkles, yeah. And nonetheless, you know, are, to me, extremely beautiful. I mean, I think... It would be stupid to say that Keanu Reeves is as beautiful as he was, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago, because, you know, he's not 25 or 30. But, you know, there, there are scenes where he's just so beautiful in this film. Yeah, so, mm. so it's a film that, that at its heart is a middle-aged love story and that really makes those middle-aged people beautiful, uh, desirable, appealing... Yeah, kind of. Uh, um, so I, I really value that, actually. And the reason that I say that the trans reading of the film is kind of come into focus is is because in the kind of intervening 20 years between the original trilogy and this, trans narrative, trans people, mm-hmm. the idea of being trans has become much more open, more accepted. I mean, there's still huge problems, but mm-hmm. it's become something that we're kind of much more open to. And in particular, with The Matrix, the Wachowski brothers, as they then were mm. since both transitioned and are now the Wachowski sisters, mm-hmm. um, Lana and Lily. And Lana is the one who directed this. They were a team and now I don't know why they're not doing it together, but I don't think it's like mm. they broke up or anything. But um, this is this is Lana's film. She's directing it herself. Um, and she works in it with David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas. And Tom Tickford. Tom Tickford did the music. Yeah. Let me get the other writer. And um, he did Sense8 with them. Yeah, Alexander Heman as well, or Heman, uh, is the other writer. I'm not. I'm not as familiar with him. And the thing about the, the the trans reading, just to kind of briefly rehash it, I suppose, briefly rehearse it, of the original film is that it can be seen as Neo. Neo's not trans himself; like he's a man. But the idea of him being Thomas Anderson and then coming out into the real world as Neo, this new mm-hmm. identity that is his identity can be read as, I mean, there's so much detail in it and people have done very deep readings on it. It's just something that we didn't cover the first time, but it's it's so clearly there. And in fact, uh, in kind of preparation for seeing the new Matrix, um, I watched the original trilogy again. And I started, I haven't finished, but I started listening to the Philosopher's Commentary uh, on the first one, which I've not quite finished. Ken Wilber and Cornell West. Mm-hmm discussing it and it's so fascinating because they just they're obviously very highly educated and they know what they're talking about but it's just that they open your eyes to new ways of seeing things that are in these films i mean there's a whole kind of buddhist thing going on which is quite explicit you know when neo goes and there's a whole spoon thing and it's like it's a buddhist kind of Mm. group of people you know anyway but what i was going to say is um cornell west mentions at one or two points god it's so great to see uh, how inclusive this is. Yes, very right? much so. And this is a commentary that was being done, you know, way back when. Um, and he's talking about, you know, Morpheus, a black man in a position of power. Just, you don't question it at any mm. point, you know. In this new film, um, you've got this uh, uh, androgynous uh, sort of Asian-American woman. Uh, actually, she's not American. Um, Asian-English, I think. Asian-British, who is the leader of the ship. Yeah, played by Jessica Henwick. It's Bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith appears in the second and third films, and then there's this whole thing about how she's a great pilot of the, mm. of the ship, and then this old white guy is going bullshit. 
you know, you can't pilot this, no one can, and then, you know, she does it really well, and it's just like this whole thing of, women can't drive, yes. you know, and I just thought, you know, when I was listening to the commentary, when Cornell West mentions this, I thought, it's so, it's kind of, it's so pressing, we didn't know at the time that uh, the, the, the Wachowskis would uh, come out as trans, and mm. so on, but like, it, it, it kind of, in the light of all the work that they've done since um, The Matrix, the original Matrix trilogy, uh, thinking particularly of Sense8, yes, but also is. Cloud Atlas, yes, um, it it makes so much sense. Like it 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 all kind of fits together. That they, it's just such a beautiful, kind of holistically equal place to be. And I would say ultimately in this film, and this is a big spoiler, and we're going to get into spoiler territory. The way in which it integrates Trinity into this film and makes her equal to the One, Neo, it makes her an equivalent One. Is even more so in a way, yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole thing at the end, she's the one who finds out she can fly. Yes. Neo hasn't been able to remember how to do that, but she... The thing is... She it, saves him. In the original trilogy, it was their love story, but he was the one. She helped and she was there and she was important, but she wasn't the one. And now she is equal to him. Mm. She's, and it's taken 20 years to kind of put them on that equal mm. footing... But it has, and I think it's a it's a beautiful moment when that happens. It's a it's a beautiful moment, and it's a beautiful moment visually, because yes. you know she holds him up, she holds his hand, yeah, she saves him, and you know, kind of she's flying and he's just hanging on, right? Uh, so so you know, it's 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 beautiful conceptually, and it works dramatically, and then it's a great visual moment as well. Mm. I thought, um, I think it's. You mentioned Sense8, and I think one of the interesting things about the film is also how much of the cast of Sense8 reappears here in small roles. Mm. Yeah, kind of, you know, amongst the soldiers that surround uh, uh, Bugs. Uh, And, you know, the sensibility of Sense8, that kind of being on a continuum, kind of in terms of, you know, gender and sexuality and so on, Mm. is something that we see very much across this film and on various levels. Yeah, including the casting. I mean, this is a very queer film, not the least because it deploys kind of out famous uh, gay actors uh, in the way that it does, and actually in surprising ways. I mean, there's a whole tradition, obviously, of having villains be queer, be gay. Mm. Um, And, you know, both performers are quite theatrical and funny in the way that they perform, yeah, their badness. Uh, but what's unusual is, you know, all the action that goes along with it, yeah? Mm. I, th- I thought that was all very interesting, yeah. And you see queer relationships. I mean, the two uh, elders, yeah, kind of are clearly in, yeah, set, uh, indicated to be a couple. Yes. Um, and, and the thing is that the film doesn't make a to-do about it, right? Kind of these are all tiny parts of the film, yeah, but collectively they're very inclusive in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Mm. Uh. So let's briefly say what it's about then, shall we? Yeah, let you do that. <laughs> um, the Matrix has been away for 18 years, and at the end of Matrix Revolutions, the third one, um, Neo had gone to the Machine City. Maybe I should even give you that there's a war between machine and man, and that's what the whole trilogy is about, is that the Matrix is where the machines keep humans in a virtual reality world that looks just like our world to keep them happy so that they can harvest their bodies for power and actually the real world is an apocalyptic hellscape uh, and it's all about being free from that or trying to and at the end of uh, the third film in the trilogy Neo had returned to the machine city and he'd sacrificed himself in order to stop Agent Smith, who was rogue, taking over the Matrix. It, all, it kind of became like a let's save the Matrix mm. thing. Um, in the years since, we find out in this film, Neo has become Thomas Anderson again. Mm. His identity before he became Neo. And he's a game designer. And what we find is that he's actually made the Matrix. It was a trilogy of games. Yes, yeah, so right? the, the original trilogy is a trilogy of games. Which is something that my brother kind of anticipated. It was interesting. So in in the trailer, um, there are these shots of uh, the original film being shown in a theatre. We see this in the film. And my brother was saying, you know, what if it's about methods of control, right? The Matrix is all about systems of control. And in fact, this goes back to Jean Baudrillard, who the original trilogy was to some degree... Referencing, yeah. Yeah, to some degree based on certainly referencing. 
Bergeron wrote about the hyperreal, the simulation, and the simulacrum. The simulacrum being the copy without an original. Mm. And his objection, one of his objections to the Matrix, because everyone was like, Bergeron, what do you think? It's all about you. And he went, no, 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 I don't like it. <laughs> and one of the reasons was that it suggests that there is a real they can get back to. They, mm. they escape the Matrix to the real world. Mm. And then one of the things that the second and third films do is suggest that, well, maybe the real world isn't so real either, which is conveyed through Neo being able to see mm. uh, kind of underlying things. The way he sees the Matrix code, he sees similar things in the real world. But there's another thing that Baudrillard said. There's an interview that I found. I'll try and find it and put it on the blog. Mm. Where he talked about media as methods of control. So something like The Matrix will give you this message about freedom. But what is ultimately giving you the message of freedom? A corporation making a movie. Mm. Right? So so in Warner Brothers, in giving you this message about breakout and so on and so forth, helps you feel Mm. like you're participating in something revolutionary. And actually, you're just being controlled still. Mm. Let me say two things at this moment. Mm. You know, the first is just an acknowledgement of how self-reflexive the film is. Yeah. Right. You know, it, it talks about beginnings, the beginning, and how do you begin, how this relates to the others. Yeah, and it kind of, you know, it's constantly relating what you're seeing back to moments of the trilogy, both verbally and also visually. Yeah. Mm. So it kind of it uses a lot of excerpts from the other films as kind of, you know, plot points and reference points in the film. Uh, the film also, I think, is a very utopian film, right? Because if part of the problem of contemporary culture is that we can't see a way out of it, yes, that kind of our old methods of analysis, you know, Marxist ideas of progress or modernism itself, mm. yeah, kind of no longer apply, yet there's still not been kind of, you know, some kind of idea, yeah, uh, that people can invest in as a uh, viable change for something better, right? And so this film does try to give you that. And one of the ways that it does so is, you know, in terms of what you were saying about Baudrillard's critique of it, but I would say it's kind of Marcuse's idea of one-dimensional man, which I think is kind of dramatized in the film. Yeah, though, I mean, I don't know if they've read Marcuse or not, but his idea of one-dimensional man is that society through media promises you all of these things, but they're diminished things. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, it, 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 it'll promise you, like, that, you know, Coca-Cola will make you happy, or, uh, you know, a new fridge, yeah, or a reduced idea of sexuality or something, right? Mm. And then, you know, the society gives you what it promises. So you think you live in the best of all possible worlds, right? <laughs> and that's a way of managing control. And in a way, you know, what you see in Tom Anderson's world and Trinity's world when they're trapped inside the pod is a version of that. Though, of course, there's something niggling mm. yeah, at, at Anderson. He's not happy. He doesn't know why it is. He's seeing a therapist, right? So this idea that he lives in the best of all possible worlds is kind of, you know, something that he has doubts about, yeah? But mm. that he can't see a way out of, but he has doubts about. But that world in itself is presented very much akin to, you know, the world uh, uh, depicted or theorized by uh, uh, Marcuse in One Dimensional Man. Right. And the film breaks out of that. Uh, yeah. At the end. I, I think the, the questions that the film asks early on, this is a problem that I had with the film, a disappointment that I had with it. It makes me ask all these questions early on. What is going on? Why are these scenes playing out exactly as they did in the first film? Mm. Which is what it's doing. Doing very deliberately. And then why is there this difference? And you have a character comment on it, right? You know, we know how this plays out, but then it plays out differently. Why is this going mm. on? If you come to this with a, you know, a, a knowledge of uh, The Matrix, enough of a knowledge to recognise these scenes, then the film is getting you to ask what is the nature of this world? This is not the way it was before. What's going on? I think it's great. But the problem that I then had is that when that is finally answered with Neo, has, or Thomas Anderson, has been making these matrixes, making the game, hmm. and this is and these are kind of these are, these are what they call the modals. These are versions of the matrix. Left one open, which is where yeah. the niggle, of which that, is where they get in. Yeah, one dimensional world comes in. Yeah. When it's kind of revealed that it's all his doing, and it comes from you know this is it, it, it's his memory, and he's remembering this from somewhere, and he's built it into this game. 
the sense of wonder that I had in the world immediately disappeared. For me, it became more interesting because you detect that it's a running strand in the film, right? You know, so the whole th- the whole conversations with the with the therapist, played by Neil, Neil Patrick, Patrick Harris, um, and his cat, who is called Deja Vu, and you know he has this water uh, dish, yeah, with Deja Vu, and a lot of the film is about Deja Vu, but Deja Vu is something that reminds you of the past, yeah, but that is th- that now becomes different, right? And I think that's threaded into. The film is very structured, you know? so it's always kind of, mm. you know, bringing back elements from the other films, but it, you know, it takes you in a different direction, or it gives you a twist, or yeah, yeah, it kind of allows for the change in in what you saw or remember, which I thought was very interesting. I want to um, preface this by saying uh, this might be a spoiler for the new Spider-Man film, No Way Home, just because it, rem- it, it it occurred to me as similar. Um, so if you haven't seen the new Spider-Man or care about it, then you know you might want to skip a minute or two. So this is this is spoiler territory for the new Spider-Man. In the new Spider-Man film, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, who have previously played Spider-Man in the previous versions of the franchise, show up, and there's a multiverse thing going on. It's not. I mean, there has already been a Spider-Man multiverse film. But here's another one, mm. and these Spider-Men come back. And I and the thing about the new Spider-Man film is, I saw it and I enjoyed it, but it was fleeting. And it's superficial. And, you know, I had an opportunity to uh, the other day to see it again, just because I had time to kill. And I thought, am I going to? No. You know, it wasn't in, it wasn't diverting enough to bother going back a second time. Uh, even when I had fuck all to do. Mm. So, <laughs> and, and I was reminded of it here because something that I kind of felt in the new Spider-Man was how it felt like fan fiction, like it felt inconsequential, insubstantial. Like I, it just I think it is fan service. But I, I do think that's the opposite of this film. Well, I that's what I was thinking. Is you know, is what's going on here? This is like this is this is this is what I would like to see. You know, I would like to see someone's imagination of what happens next in the Matrix. Where can this go? It felt like the story was finished, and then you see. You get this stuff. It also reminded me of the new Space Jam because Thomas Anderson's game company that he makes the Matrix games for are owned by Warner Brothers, right? So Jonathan Groff is his boss, and he says Warner Brothers have said we're making a new Matrix. Yeah, you know, you've got it's no option. Incredibly self-reflexive, ridiculously yeah. self-reflexive, right? So it's literally basically Jonathan Groff saying we have to make a new Matrix film. You know, except in the in the film, it's a new Matrix game, and we don't have a choice, and you've got to do this. And it's like the Wachowskis, or like Lana Wachowski, you know, saying, "Oh, for God's sake, do I have to?" and so on. And I was thinking, because that's so that that's such a Space Jam thing, the new Space Jam, which referenced the Matrix, because Warner Brothers, it's yeah, all the same. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was so we we agreed that was so um, sickeningly promotional and yes. corporate and, and so on. You know, this doesn't have it's, it's not to that extent. And nor is it fan fiction to the Spider-Man extent. But I was thinking, is this as insubstantial as it feels? No. Uh, I I think this is a film with great depth. And in fact, I feel like I haven't fully understood it. And I would like to see it again. But I did feel that at almost every instance, uh, you felt, you know, this imagination at work in every shot you know, and kind of graphically, visually, you know, the way that kind of Morpheus is composed of code or whatever it is and the way that that's visualized, you think, my God, how wonderful, who, who thought this the up? Magnetic balls that give him a physical form in yeah, the real world. Yeah, absolutely brilliant, you know. Mm. Um, I thought, you know, the depiction of the different worlds, uh, you know, the way that they reintroduce the bullet time, uh the way that, you know, uh, the rules of where physics is maintained, yeah, where gravity is maintained and where it isn't, yeah, you were always, yeah, kind of, I was never confused by that, mm. right? I mean, I think this is like a, you know, uh, uh, I think it's an absolutely brilliant film, though, I think my one quibble would be that. It didn't, you know, like when I was watching Sensei, there were, there were times where I just cried with emotion. I couldn't believe mm-hmm. that I was seeing something like that, right? It was kind of, you know, something beyond my horizon of expectations. And it was just absolutely thrilling and moving uh, to see it uh, on, on television. And 
you know, I do think that this is a film about ideas and aesthetics, yeah? Um, it, I, I, I wasn't moved by any of it, were you? Um, when uh, Neo and Trinity... Neo goes into the Matrix to try and convince Trinity. It's about getting her out and she doesn't remember anything. And they have that scene in the coffee shop surrounded by the police. And it's when she turns round and remembers and, and goes with him. That's not the moment, but it's just after that when the fight begins and they call out each other's names. Mm. That I felt that emotionally. Mm. And I think also towards the end when they when they kiss, I can't remember exactly the moment, but there's a there's a point. I think it's on the rooftop and there's mm. a, it's very sun kissed, you mm. know, the, the, the light um kind of quality. Um there was a moment there that I felt but not deeply, really. Mm. So this is a film I think uh that you know works on you intellectually and it works on you aesthetically. Yeah, I think there were some moments, including what you're describing as affecting, which I just found beautiful, right? I found the light on the skin in that last embrace mm. really beautiful because you know, there was something beautiful to me about not hiding their age, yeah, but making them beautiful and making them in love and, yeah. Mm. Uh, and actually, I thought that what was interesting as well was that the, inf- the emphasis on the film is always... So it's not necessarily making you feel for it, or at least not me, but the film's accent is on what these characters feel for each other. It's not like a physical desire for each other. It's a, it's love, right? Mm. Um, so I thought all of that was was kind of interesting, but but I did experience it more on a, a, a anesthetic yeah, level. Um, I spent the whole first half, at least, of the film just with my, my hand on my chin going, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thinking, what is going on? What does this mean? Um, it did start to feel a, a little light. Like, I did think I've kind of... I think I've kind of got the measure of this as a self-reflexive kind of media object. But, but then it moves on. Yeah. It doesn't remain that self-reflexive forever, yeah. right? Yeah, and I was glad when it did. Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't. I was neither glad nor not glad because I think both things worked for me, right? I think the self-reflexiveness was necessary. Mm. It situates kind of particularly new viewers into the 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 world of the Matrix and its various kind of problems. So I, I appreciated that. But then it took off in another direction. What I would say is that I mean it would be grandiose to call it like a revolutionary film or a radical film or whatever, but you know, it is one of the few uh, Hollywood franchise films that calls for, advocates, and exemplifies change. Mm. You know, there is a critique of our system, yeah, and a call for its overthrow that's embedded into this film in a way that I find, you know, very unusual. But going back to that critique that Baudrillard had, is it just giving you that and then you go home and don't make any change? Well, but, you know, kind of maybe change begins with this acknowledgement, you know. uh, So I think, um, you know, a lot of Marxists would critique the film's depiction that we are all dulled, you know, by our own matrix into an acceptance of, you know, the best of all possible worlds and, you know, accepting an illusion of, you know, a handsome man and children you know, as what you want your life to be, right? Um, rather than a call for the real. I think Baudrillard will continue to be upset by this film because the real is very present in this film. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of, it's present uh, physiologically and it's, pre- it's present in a distinction between that which is illusory, yeah, mm. and uh, that which you are controlled into thinking or cheated into thinking, you know, and that's what you really feel. So, you know, to have that kind of um, binary, yeah, mm. uh, would be against uh, what I understand, uh, you know, to be uh, Baudrillard's point, though I'm not an expert uh, on Baudrillard. The film, however, is a bit more, is a bit, let's say, less binary than that because it accepts that what the characters feel in the pod in the world where they're under control and the possibilities beyond that is nonetheless true. 
it's nonetheless felt. Yeah? Mm. So, um, but nonetheless, it does make those distinctions, yeah? That kind of, you know, one is forced feeling, you know, and the other one is something innate to you and your understanding and your free uh, thinking. Hmm. Agent Smith is now played by Jonathan Groff. So Fabulous. The characters have kind of, well, a couple of the characters have come back. And Smith, I found underutilized. Smith is the, he's the antagonist of the original trilogy. And the thing is, in the original trilogy, is he's an agent of the system, uh, keeps people under control, and fights the, the freedom fighters. And then he goes rogue in his fight at the end of Matrix with Neo. He's killed, but then something happens. He comes back. They bring him back for the second and third films, and he's no longer part of the system. And he starts to kind of take over the Matrix. And here, they he basically has become frenemies with Neo. Yes. And his his position, John Lee plays it so beautifully. It's wonderful. Oh, he's so good. He's got a sense of humour about him. You know, he's like there's this thing about how he's loosened up. You know, he's mm. no longer Mister Anderson. He calls him Tom, so mm. he's still not calling him Neo, but he's Tom. Hey, and he's like, where he looks like a fucking Abercrombie and Fitch model. The stuff he wears. Um, I loved him, but he's not the antagonist here. At one point, he allies with Neo and Trinity because the actual antagonist ends up being Neil Patrick Harris's character, starts off as this therapist, and it turns out to be something that they call the analyst, mm. who appears to be a real kind of central machine figure mm. um, who has been using Neo for his own ends. And in the guise of this therapist has been controlling Neo, you know, it's no accident that his glasses are in those bright blue frames you know the, mm. the red pill blue pill imagery is so mm. strong cut throughout this film um the whole idea of the red I, pill from the original is the red pill gives you the truth sets you free the blue pill keeps you dull keeps you in the i matrix. love the way that the red pill was made shiny yeah. whereas the blue one wasn't <laughs> so so neil patrick harris's analyst is the antagonist here he can control the flow of time, as you say. They kind of they kind of bring back bullet time, or it's a slightly different effect. But you know, this is his power. He's totally in control. Smith is no a I, disappointment. No, I don't. I don't find it so. Uh, I think the film is beautifully structured, so that um, Tom Anderson slash Neo has a symbiotic relationship with. The Jonathan Groff character, and with uh, Trinity, yeah, and actually, you know, they're symbiotic. They're, yeah, so I think uh, the Jonathan Groff, or is it the Jonathan Groff character? Maybe it's the Neil Patrick Harris one that says, you know, that separately. So they have to be close together, yeah, but not too close together because when they are actually together, then they're unstoppable. That's yeah? the Neil Patrick it Harris character. Creates an energy of its own. You know, but then the Jonathan Groff character has this whole thing that, you know, what uh, Neo, uh, uh, Tom Anderson has failed to recognize is that they also have like a kind of a symbiotic character. Yeah, the kind of, you know, that actually uh, 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 Neo's enslavement is what freed mm. the Jonathan Groff character. Yeah, you know, that he became himself. Yeah. Uh, and so again, there's that very interesting kind of queer thing about yeah kind of adopting another identity yeah um and and becoming it yeah that is kind of part of the jonathan graf character but it is based on the symbiosis mm. with the uh uh keanu reeves uh, character but as for his plot function here you know well it's not just a plot function it's an interesting you know because the the way that it's structured in plot also raises at least the question about the film's meaning and not its philosophy, mm. which is how do those two symbiotic relationships compare? Yeah, and what do they bring to each other, kind of? And, you know, how how do they function? Yeah, kind of, what does it mean that, uh, you know, this... Because uh, what is the Jonathan Groff character? Yeah, he is, you know, on the one hand, in, in, in the world of Tom Anderson, he is... A super capitalist uh, owner of, you know, this huge video game. His company. former business partner, and and yeah, his former business partner who's clearly taken over the reins of the capital, <laughs> right? Because you know he treats him as his boss, yeah, um, yeah. So kind of you know this thing about 
easy enslavement that frees one, you know, or someone who's got to be wakened up so they could be more together than they are, you know, separate. It's a very interesting thing that the film works through. Hmm. Yeah, and actually, it has other kinds of things like that, right? So clearly, the blue character is meant to be a reflection of Trinity. So while Trinity's asleep, you know, blue functions. Yeah, the way bugs. It, you mean? Bugs, sorry, right. uh, bugs functions as you know the way the Trinity did in the previous films. I think all of those things are really fascinating in terms of the way that the film is structured. Hmm. It it felt. Um... It's felt somehow stretched to me. I mean, I, I do think it's a good move to introduce this new antagonist. And I think it works well. I didn't I didn't anticipate Neil Patrick Harris having this role. I mm. thought it would be Smith. Mm. You know? And it was quite clear from the trailer that Jonathan Groff was this new Smith. And I think that had it been Smith again, you know, I mean, the, the films are self-reflective and they are building on the previous films and they are reenacting parts of them think it might have been just just too much like it did feel like that story had finished mm. you know there was no more fight to be had between Neo and Smith and this different fight is interesting the one he has with the analyst but I don't think that Smith ends up being integrated well enough because it, it, what his status is is I just think I need to know more about it like the thing was with Smith in the old films is he was laser focused on power and replicating himself to the point where at the end of the third film he has taken over the entire Matrix with just copies of himself, mm. right? Um, like there's no kind of there's no question as to kind of what he wanted. But isn't um, there a line in the film explaining that? I mean, I might be misremembering, but it is something like, you know, that that he then became free, yeah, and you know, to be himself, which was like something else. You know? I have to I have to, well, I have to look at it again. I don't remember. Um, but I, I I do want more. I do want more. From, I just want to understand you him better. More of everything. I just want to understand him better. You know? He's such a key character, and then he ends up just being, like I say, kind of floating around, sort of being a villain, but not. I liked uh, that in the film. I liked the way that it had, like, you know, these pockets that function kind of differently. You mm. know, I, and, and yet they never felt tangential or choppy, or I think they're really well integrated, but they did feel like they're different, right? I love the use of mirrors in this film and this goes back to saying that we talked about on the podcast of the original matrix where i talked about how that film picks up and drops ideas quite quickly and one of those ideas uh, was the mirror so the the only time that was relevant in the original matrix from 99 was when they're freeing neo he puts his hand into this mirror and it wobbles and it's one of these key moments where you go fuck the world is not what i thought it was mm. Um, and then the mirror kind of spreads and takes over his body and they manage to get him out just in time. But you go, that in itself could be, you know, a kind of a metaphor for trans issues. Yes, the sense of, you know, it both being a reflection, yeah, but a reflection of something you want to change. And then kind of when you go into the mirror, you're in another world. Hmm. You know, I mean, I thought it's a very interesting concept. Right, but the thing is, in the first film, it stops there. You see mm. the mirror once, it goes. Right, mm. and the film does that with a few things, like the um, the uh, the scene where Smith is interrogating Thomas Anderson as he then is, and he seals up his mouth. Mm. You know, again, it stopped. You know, well, fucking hell, what happened there? Didn't didn't come back. So, what they've done here, though, with the mirrors, is they've made it a key motif. It's everywhere. Mm. Right. And the and well, I think it's a great thing to do because one of the in plot function what it does is it means that they don't have to use telephones anymore. The whole thing in the original films was people still use landlines, mm. and so landlines were the way in which characters got in and out of the matrix. And now no one has a landline anymore; no one uses them. Right? Not there aren't any payphones anymore. Um, so the way in which characters transition between the real world and the matrix is through mirrors. They walk through them. You see this in the trailer. Mm. They become this liminal space through which you, you, you move and also see things. So in The Matrix, they reveal truth, right? They reveal, you know, the, the reflection that you constantly, you always see, like, on the coffee table, see a reflection of the actual old Neo, which is not his self-image, but it's the real Neo that everyone else is seeing. You only see in a reflection. You get on the, you know, when it's raining uh, on, on a window and when it's misty on a, a kind of bathroom mirror, you wipe it to one side and that's where... Uh, Morpheus sees the Matrix code. Mm. He sees it hanging out in the mirror. They become these vectors for truth. 
I think it's great. I think it's such a, it, it, I, it it makes it so much richer, you know, so much more so much more rewarding as an image, mm. you know. And then you end up with that fight where, um, well, I suppose it's a fight it, um, when they're freeing Neo in this film, and it's a very deliberate reflection of the freeing scene that I've mentioned from the first film and the mirror again is key except now he's trying to be pulled through the mirror by the analyst who sees that who's trying to keep him from being freed mm. and, it be- and the camera's s- swirling around you see both sides of the mirror you see the reality that he's trying to be kept in the reality he's trying to be pulled from and it's beautiful I mean you're talking about the film as, as, as an aesthetic project a film about aesthetics the mirror can completely speaks to that the other thing that I think is great in aesthetic terms in this, the, the decision that is great is making the Matrix sunny. You know, the thing in the original films was that when you were in the Matrix world, it was green tinted, and that's kind mm. of how you knew, and it gave it this apocalyptic feel, mm. um, real dystopian feel. Um, that's completely gone from this. For one thing, it says this is a new Matrix. Right, it's not the same actual virtual world as the old one, so it kind of separates it in that it's sense. It's a new code, exactly. And the code in, in this matrix uh, involves sunlight, hmm. which is nice. Um, you know, the word apocalyptic is something that I really associate with those first three films, and this film, I felt like I associated the word fluid with it. There's something fluid about the way, the way that things move, and there's something about the word fluid that that speaks to me with regards to. The aesthetic as well. Yes, because it's full. Uh, it's full of. It's that liquid that people sometimes have sex with. Yeah, it's gloopy. Yeah, it's you know. So when Neon is in the vat and he comes out of it, he's dripping oh, with all KY that. jelly, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know when the hands go through the mirror, there is almost like this thick liquefaction. Mm. You know that takes place. Um, also, by the way, you know, when he goes to the last mirror, which I think, again, is, a, is an interesting, something to think about in relation to, to trans issues, it's almost like there's an argument, the mirror's too small, you won't fit in. Yeah, but there's something, if, if you just go in, it will expand to fit you. Yeah? Just, yeah? <laughs> yeah. It's a very Alice in Wonderland type feeling as yeah. well, like getting bigger, getting smaller. Yeah. So, but also it relates to, you know, you might not see yourself this way, but you can become this, yeah? Or you have the power <laughs> of transformation. Or, yeah, I thought that was all kind of um, very interesting. I think the action was disappointing. Uh, it's actually interesting that one of the things the film did was preempt me um, because, I, I don't know if I said this to you, but I was definitely talking to Matt about it, saying, the thing is that the first Matrix completely changed cinema. It, 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 did. it did things visually that people had no idea could be done. And it did action completely differently. Right, bullet time is the kind of key innovation. Yeah. That's the one people point, and it was everywhere after that and the thing was in the second and third films the pressure was on what are, what are they going to do to innovate mm. you know and there was this, there was a lot of hype about the freeway chase for instance it was like a 20 minute fight scene on a freeway and so on there was the thing about the burly brawl which is where you see hundreds and hundreds of agent smiths that have all been copied fighting Neo um, and so in a way I kind of felt oh there's pressure on here like what's going to be different because in that intervening time in the intervening what 18 years since the last Matrix came out the Bourne films came out no no <laughs> I, I'm not even thinking about them I'm thinking about um, the Marvel films right CGI and and visual effects have, have reached a point where you no longer I, I said earlier about feeling wonder you don't feel wonder anymore no you don't right and they're so good I mean for instance in the Marvel films it's very obvious that, you know, the Hulk is CGI. But things like Iron Man's suit is always CGI. You, you never think you, it. You never feel in any film that there are there's a person under threat. Yeah, that there's a physical body that could be hurt. So, so to me, it removes all the excitement out, out of it, actually. Because it is just too much CGI. You know, I never feel, you know, the kind, that kind of excitement. This isn't where I'm going with it at all. This isn't where I'm going with it at all. It's about the sense of... Of wonder, like I say, you don't wonder it, what 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 can be done now with visual effects is so advanced and is done all the time that it's it, like if you if you knew it, like I say, this thing about if you knew actually that 
so much of what you're seeing is CGI. Iron Man suit, they don't have a prop suit for him. It's just CGI that they put on Robert Downey. Well, not anymore, but that they put on Robert Downey Jr. Even in scenes where he's just like walking around. It's it's amazing what they can do so seamlessly, but you don't feel a sense of wonder. You, you never ask yourself, how did they do that? Okay. And so I felt the pressure was on with this film. How did? How are they going to do... You know, I want that... What am I going to think? How do they do okay. that? Well, there were instances... So, but we're not talking about action now. But there were instances where I did feel that in this film. Really? Yeah. Yes, I felt that with Morpheus. Yeah, as I said before, when you know, the, just the way that he's created. Yeah. Uh, but do I, you feel a sense of how do they do that, or did you not just go it's computers? They did it with computers. <laughs> well, but also no, I feel uh, they did it with computers. But how did they do that still? Yeah, because you know the thing that you're talking about, the Iron Man suits or whatever, you don't even notice. You don't even register anymore. It's just becomes part of the mise-en-scene of the story. Mm. Whereas actually there were moments here, the hands going through the glass, uh, e- even the bits of bullet time that they use, I mean, there were quite a few moments I thought, wow, you know, this is amazing. There are, there are things that made me go, wow, this is amazing, but nothing that inspired that same sense of wonder, and I just think, oh, maybe that's gone. But the thing is, what I was saying about the film preempting it was in the scenes early on in the video game company, and you get the kind of the, the brainstorming around the table. And there's this whole segment which which just goes really full on into the self reflexivity of it being a media product, where they're saying people want a new matrix, what are we going to do with it? What are they expecting? Are they want words like original and fresh and all this. Mm. Um, and one of the things that they say is about it about people want to see something different, innovative. And I was like, fuck. Like they've got ahead of me. They've disarmed me wanting to see, you know, wondering mm. what will be innovative by saying it's there in the film. What it ultimately comes to, though, is that the kind of the quote-unquote new bullet time, which is not really, it's this, it's this um, control of time that the analyst character has, where he can slow Neo down significantly and move around freely around him. Um, I think it's used well. It's, it, it's made quite intimidating. Like his use of it is intimidating. He has this control that, yes. that Neo cannot break out of. The thing with the um, apple was wonderful. Yes, the apple was lovely. Um, but it wasn't something that you know really visually excited me. I've got to say. Um, and when it came to the action scenes, I didn't really feel excited by any of them. Well, um, okay. So now let's get to the action, which is where I thought you were yeah. going. My feeling about the action was that it was initially disappointing because I thought it was overly influenced by the Bourne films. Mm-hmm. It began to seem too choppy. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas kind of you know one of the beautiful things about the Matrix film was seeing Keanu Reeves in those wires doing those balletic moves. I mean, it was just beautiful, mm. right? Uh, so I initially thought it was, you know, quite poor, really. And then it slowly won me over. Yeah, I, I kind of, I did find, you know, that some of the tumbles and the moves and, you know, uh, were, were exciting to see. Though, that said, not at a very high level. Yeah. There were moments that I liked when they remake Agent Smith's acquaintance in that derelict building. Neo and Smith end up on their own. And Neo, he kicks him, then runs around a wall and kicks him again. I thought, fucking hell, that's cool. You know, that's, <laughs> it's, it's like a movie from the first film, right? Like a movie from the first, second and third films. Um, but there was too little of that. And most of the action is fairly nondescript. And the most interesting part of the action scenes, as I think is actually quite common in cinema generally, um, which is not to cinema's credit, is the talking. Like, the, the, the bits of plot development and the character development that happen within an action scene were the best bits. A bit of conversation between uh, Smith and Neo, for instance. Yes. And actually the fighting that punctuates it, or that they punctuate, was not that interesting. It was not uh, spectacular enough, it's true. And later on, you end up with this uh, chase uh, through this through the city with Neo and Trinity on a bike. And this is another thing, rather like the mirrors, that like happened a bit before and now is everywhere, is Neo's force power. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have seen it. It's not the first, because he's, he's stopped bullets before with it. But this time, he's using it all the time. He's pushing people out of the way and he's stopping bullets and left, right and centre. And I liked the, the kind of expansion of this you know, occasional power of his into a full-on, like, that just becomes his thing now. Mm. But I did wonder whether... Remember when we saw the new Rambo? And we went, like, he just can't do action. He's, like, 79 or something, Sylvester Stallone. Like, he's just not 
doing hand-to-hand combat anymore. So they orchestrate the action in such a way that he doesn't have to. They do traps and things instead. I did think, God bless Keanu Reeves. He's 50-odd now. You know, is it Closer that he, to 60 than 50, I would imagine. Right. He Is it that he, he can't do the action anymore and well, they, they've orchestrated it in such a way that he actually keeps a distance from the action? We see him do, you know, uh, some moves, mm. yeah. Um, but it is, And he's John Wick as well. I'm not saying, like, the guy can't do action. Yeah. And but he's the, not, the he's not 30 anymore. are fantastic uh, uh, with him doing action. So I don't think it's that. Uh, I think maybe they were going for, for something else. Though, you know, age is clearly a factor for, mm. for both him and the Carrie... Carrie-Anne Moss. Carrie-Anne Moss character. Uh, my best bit about that was the people jumping off... Uh, the buildings and falling like rain on him. That was terrifying, actually. I thought, I thought that, that was, was really fantastic. creepy. <laughs> um, yeah, because the, the it's explained as this swarm program. Um, you know what it reminded me of? You know, in uh, Lubitsch's um, what's the Nazi film? To be or, to not, be or to not to be, be where uh, you know they're at the plane at the end, and uh, the guy says jump, and the guy goes how Hitler and jumps. <laughs> 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 it really reminded me of that. Yeah. I think the, the way that they fall, how how quickly they do it, and they just splatter on the ground, I find really creepy, mm. really scary. And I suppose it's partly also like the mind control thing of it, because the idea is that they're just they are being zombified. Yes, um, um, and that kind of zombification and the awakening from that zombification is a core theme in the film. Mm. So. Well, it does hark back to the theme of the original film, one of the themes, which is, is it better to know or not to know? Yeah, that's what it was asking. You know, if it, the truth is hard to take. Those were debates in the early AIDS years. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yes. Is it better to know or not yeah. to know? Because if you can't do anything about it, it's better not to know. Yeah. Mm. Or at least or a, is it? an argument is that it's better not to know. Yeah. Yeah, because... so. So the principle was that there was an obligation on everyone to have safe sex because yeah, you were responsible for others, right? So, but given that you were having safe sex, then, you know, was it better to know or not to know? If there was no medication, if there was no help, why now? At least you could live your life mm. yeah, in as normal a way as possible for as long as possible. Whereas if you knew but you could do nothing about it, then, you know, you were just going to think about how your the horrible death to come. <laughs> in Yeah. Uh, so, so I think, and I'm not saying that this isn't necessarily an influence in this film, but, you know, it does have something of that. Yeah. You know, is it better to know and not, or not to know? And part of the answer to that is, can something be done about it? Yeah. Mm. Is, is there a possibility of change? Right. Can you make the world better? Can you make your life better? If so... Yeah, then it's better to know. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, and I think the the whole film's ending about we are going to remake the world or we are going to try to remake the world, yeah, is kind of a very powerful kind of statement in that context. It's better to know because you can change it. Mm. You can make it better. You can try and make it better. Mm. It actually feels like that final scene where they. Um, uh, confront the analyst. It felt like that killed a sequel for me. There were so many questions that I had about what was going to happen next, or what could happen next, what the ensuing fight would, would be, uh, because cause the analyst hadn't been, you know, uh, uh, his story hadn't been closed off. And I thought, oh, is there another trilogy coming? And, you know, if, the, if it makes money, I presume there'll be more going on. Although, to be fair, Warner Brothers hasn't been smart enough to make new Matrix games in God knows how long, and people have been crying for one of those. They haven't made new Matrix games since, like, 2005 or something. Um... Point is, they just like it seems allergic to money, right? <laughs> um, but I just think you know, at, at the end of the the end of the third Matrix film, it was like the possibility of something else was still in the air because there was a question of will we see Neo again? And um, the Oracle says, yeah, I think we might, and then fade to black. Here, it's like, oh, we just won, right? We won. We're in charge. No one can beat us. And mm-hmm. So like, feel like too happy an ending. <laughs> I thought it offered. Closure. I mean, I think if there was if there was not to be another Matrix film, I think I would be quite happy that this was the last one. Actually, mm. it leaves possibilities for more, but it doesn't need them. No. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think it's an incredibly successful sequel. Yeah. Well, it's still. I mean, how much did it cost? Probably two hundred million dollars, something like that. 
I have no idea. Nor have I. But a lot of money. Big Matrix film. And it's going to constantly be a triumph that you made a film like this, with this budget. A a ten-pole blockbuster, which is ideas-based, which is so representative in such an uncomplicated way of so many different types of people. and, Mm. And it's so inclusive. That's written and directed by a trans woman. Yes. Um, that, that in itself is, is just huge. Yes, and that's so great. And I think it's a real feminist film. That shot of Carrie Ann Moss. Well, actually, not just that. It begins with the question of choice. Yeah. When Neo says it has to be her choice. Yeah, she's got to want to come back. Mm. Right. And I think that narrative reinflecting of the choice to be the woman's choice, to me, is you know, incredibly significant. Mm. And then, of course, that culminates with the hand at the end and the, you know, in the sky. I thought that was fantastic. Mm. Yeah, and the three key people in positions of power are women here. There's Bugs, who operates the ship. Niobe, mm-hmm. who's now leading IO City. And Trinity, ultimately. Yes. Uh, who becomes uh, a new Neo. That's right. <laughs> a so, new one. <laughs> so it's a film to see. Oh yeah, absolutely. Over and over again. I mean, I I, pro- I will watch it twice. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I doubted it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll go back and see it at the cinema again though. No. Um, but it's a film that will reward further viewing. Yes. You know, and whatever the philosophers' commentary, you know, if they get Ken Wilber and Cornell West back, I'll definitely give it a listen. Exactly. Um, so I'm glad. I, I mean, more than anything, I'm glad it exists. It feels like a really great film, though. You know, I think only only more viewings will confirm that. Yeah, mm. but my first impression is that it is. Mm. Really glad it exists. On that note, <laughs> thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>